From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. Roscoe, good morning. The IRS says it wants to be totally certain the wealthiest filers are filing on the level, but does it have the resources? We have roughly 2,600 IRS employees to assess whether those 400,000 entities and individuals are paying what they owe. Some of these returns are thousands and ten thousands of pages. And artificial intelligence may be on its way to a campaign ad near you. Find out more. Plus, a giant roadside peanut statue in Georgia is back and better than ever. And there's always the puzzle. It's Sunday, July 30th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The list of criminal charges against former President Donald Trump is growing as he faces a potential third criminal indictment. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports federal prosecutors last week filed three new counts against Trump and to his alleged mishandling of classified documents after he left the White House. The allegation here is that after the FBI and the Justice Department issued a subpoena for security footage of Mar-a-Lago, uh, Trump, Nada, and this third man, Carlos de Oliveira, cooked up a plot to try to delete the security footage to keep it out of the hands of the FBI. And there, there's some allegation about de Oliveira telling another Mar-a-Lago employee, the boss really wants this done. That's NPR's Gary Johnson reporting. The additional charges in the classified documents case includes two counts of obstruction and a new count of willfully retaining national defense information. Vice President Kamala Harris is once again calling for stricter gun control measures and expanded access to abortion. Walter Wuthman of member station WBUR reports Harris delivered the keynote address to a national gathering of the NAACP in Boston last night. Thousands of NAACP delegates from across the country are in Boston this weekend to vote on the civil rights organization's national policy priorities. Harris criticized Republican attacks on abortion access and voting rights and called on Congress to pass stricter gun control laws. There is no place for an assault weapon on the streets of civil America. We need to renew the assault weapons ban. This is the second time Harris has headlined the annual NAACP convention. For NPR News, I'm Walter Wuthman in Boston. Kenya says it's preparing to send 1,000 police officers to Haiti. NPR's Ada Peralta reports it's part of an international effort to stabilize the country amid an increase in gang violence. Haiti is in free fall. Gangs control much of the country and the government has failed to recover following the assassination of President Jovenel Moise in 2021. The de facto prime minister has asked for an international intervention, but the U.S. and other countries have struggled to find the country to lead that force. Now, Kenya says it is ready to lead, but the news comes as Kenya's security forces have been accused of using excessive force in an effort to put down popular protests. So far, some 30 protesters have been killed. In a statement, the foreign minister says an assessment mission will arrive in Haiti in the next few weeks, but a full deployment will only come after approval from the U.N. Security Council. Ada Peralta, NPR News, Mexico City. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. 
Vice President Kamala Harris made a surprise visit to Roxbury Community College before speaking at the NAACP convention in Boston. Harris appeared at a town hall at the school to discuss voting rights and the presidential campaign. She accused Republicans of dodging serious issues facing black Americans. For example, policies that are about prioritizing diversity. And they try to distract us from that by instead suggesting that enslaved people of America benefited from slavery. Harris called on the group to register voters and organize for the next election. Police are identifying a woman they say was fatally stabbed outside of Park Street Station in Boston. Officers say they responded to the area near the MBTA station earlier this month to find a 21-year-old suffering from stab wounds. Police say Jasrana Shepard of South Boston was transported to a hospital where she died of her injuries. Boston police are asking people who may know something about the case to contact them. Visitors to emergency departments in the Northeast for tick bites are up more than 30 percent from last year. That's according to the CDC's tick bite data tracker. Dr. Grace Marks is medical director with the CDC's Office of Vector-Borne Diseases. In areas where Lyme disease is common, it's important to reach out early to your health care provider after a tick bite. Um, to see if a single dose of doxycycline to prevent Lyme disease could be appropriate. The CDC recommends using EPA-registered insect repellent, such as DEET, when you're outdoors. As another line of defense against ticks, you can treat clothing with a tick-repelling substance called permethrin. New England's largest celebration of gospel music takes place today in Boston. The free public concert will include performances by Fred Hammond and the Mayor's Gospel Choir, as well as an appearance by Mayor Wu. Doors at the Leaderbank Pavilion open at 3 o'clock. Today in Boston, mostly sunny with highs in the upper 70s. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. It's not two different issues. How is one keep being indicted and another not? That's House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to CNN's Manu Raju Friday. The speaker was answering a question about the special counsel's new allegations against former President Donald Trump in the classified documents case. And what you heard was McCarthy pointing to the documents retrieved from President Biden. NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro joins us now. Good morning, Domenico. Hey, Aisha. Okay, let's set aside the fact that former Vice President Mike Pence also found and returned classified documents. Um, Is Speaker McCarthy on defensible ground here? I mean, not really. You know, this is a pretty surface-level argument. I mean, he knows that. You know, he's just trying to defend his guy at all costs, which we've now seen repeatedly from McCarthy and other Republicans, though not all Republicans. You know, there's a pretty simple answer to his rhetorical question. You know, when Biden's team found documents, when former Vice President Pence found documents, they gave them back and cooperated with the government. Trump allegedly not only didn't give them back, he hid them, moved them. He even tried to have a worker at his Florida home delete the surveillance 
surveillance footage so the FBI wouldn't see it, according to the Justice Department. And it wasn't just a cover-up because Trump is on tape flaunting national security documents and saying he knew that they were classified, that he didn't declassify them as president, and it all really continues to be a scandal of Trump's own making. So you've just written about the other Biden's legal issues, Hunter Biden's gun and tax charges that were, then they weren't, and may again be the subject of a plea deal with the government. What is going on with that? Right. Well, his you know deal fell apart because of questions about how it would work and whether he could be prosecuted for not registering as a foreign agent. His team thought no, the government thought yes. This wasn't because the deal was inappropriate or a sweetheart deal, as some Republicans maintain. As we've reported, this type of deal is in line with past ones for these types of charges. What Hunter Biden is accused of, arguably, is far less serious than what Trump is accused of. But for Republicans, that's not really the point. You know, they believe that Hunter Biden's legal issues and ethical ones in trying to cash in on his father's name are the tip of the iceberg, and below the water is really the president himself. You know, but they're making a lot of logical leaps here to get to that point with no evidence to support this bridge and getting there. You know, that's not to say Hunter Biden shouldn't be investigated or held accountable. I mean, but the willingness to so easily believe something that is that it's definitely true to say is really something that defines the Trump era of politics for conservatives. I mean, you know, you have said that you see, if not signs, maybe hints that Trump isn't politically politically immune to all of these indictments. And I would think there would also be some impact, even if he were able to get the nomination, in the general election. Definitely. I mean, some hints possibly, right? I mean, our okay. latest survey, um, you know, the NPR PBS NewsHour Maris poll found this week that Republicans and Republican-leaning independents dropped nine points in thinking Trump had done nothing wrong. That's from 50% last month to 41% this month. And he dropped six points with that same group in who they said they wanted to be their nominee, but it went from 64% to 58%. So still a pretty sizable majority of potential Republican voters saying they want Trump back in office. So, you know, Trump is still the far and away front runner with numbers like those. You know, we'll have to see if more data on this, uh, you know, shows a trend or not, but there is a clear trend. And that has to do with what you're talking about with a general election. In our poll and others, we've seen that Trump is toxic with the middle. You know, the survey found most people People think Trump did something illegal, including 52% of independents. At this point, Trump really has to hope that there's a more crowded general election field than just two candidates for him to have a better than even money chance of winning it back, to, uh, making it back to the White House. In the about the a minute we have left, the House and Senate are out on break for the next month or so. Is is this a, a well earned rest for getting everything they needed done <laughs> done, like funding the government, or are they just you know leaving town? Well, when has Congress ever gotten everything done they needed <laughs> to get done, right? Well, you know, the Senate moved on a defense bill, but the House is going to be a complication because of some of these amendments attached uh, by Republicans to this bill. We really do want to appear to be on a collision course for yet another shutdown. That's because the most hardline Republican members seem to be itching for one. Here's uh, Virginia Congressman Bob Good. What would happen if Republicans for once stared down the Democrats and were the ones who refused to cave and to betray the American people and the trust they put in us when they gave us a majority? So we don't fear a government shutdown. I mean, with that kind of attitude, this very slim four-seat majority for House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and his unwillingness to risk his job by working with Democrats to pass a bill means we are potentially on the road to a shutdown. That's NPR's Domenico Matanaro. Domenico, thanks so much. You're welcome. President Biden has said from the beginning that he wants to go after tax cheats. That's why we have to rehire some IRS agents and not to do anything, not to try to make people pay something they don't know. Just say, hey, step up. 
step up and pay like everybody else does. That's from September 2021. As a part of this effort, the IRS says it's actually rolling back a decades-old enforcement measure. We turn to IRS Commissioner Danny Werfel to find out why. Commissioner Werfel, thank you so much for being with us. Glad to be here, Aisha. So IRS revenue officers are no longer making unannounced visits, except in a few unique circumstances. Can you talk about what is the reason for this move? Well, the main reason really boils down to the fact that we have a problem with scam artists that are posing as IRS employees. And so when people answer the door and they don't expect anyone to be there because the uh, visit was unannounced, they're not sure at this point whether the person claiming to be an IRS revenue officer is actually an IRS revenue officer. Does this run the risk of being interpreted as a pullback by the IRS because a letter or a phone call might not carry the same weight as an official standing in your doorway? I don't think it should be interpreted that way. We think the best interest of advancing a better tax system is two things. Better services for honest taxpayers, in particular middle and low income individuals that often need our help in meeting their tax obligations in a complex set of tax laws, while simultaneously doing more to make sure that wealthy individuals, complex partnerships, large corporations are paying their fair share. By going after higher wealth individuals and corporations, these are people with a lot of resources who can really fight the IRS. Doesn't that make it more difficult? Look, there are roughly 400,000 filers that are our wealthiest filers. These are people that make $5 million a year or more, partnerships with $10 million or more in assets, and corporations with $250 million or more of assets. Today and before the Inflation Reduction Act, we have roughly 2,600 IRS employees available to assess whether those 400,000 entities and individuals are paying what they owe. Some of these returns are thousands and ten thousands of pages, so we have to invest in new, new skill sets, new data tools, new expertise, and more revenue agents so that we can unpack these many returns. Under the Inflation Reduction Act, your agency received about $80 billion in federal funds um, to improve customer service, upgrade technology, crack down on tax evasion. And Congress, spurred by the GOP, took $21 billion of that back. Is that, do you have enough to do what you're saying you're going to do? Well, I think there is certainly enough funds there for us to make a major change and a major shift and put a major dent into the gap that has existed. The IRS budget was consistently cut year after year for over a decade that preceded the Inflation Reduction Act. And while that period of time was going on, the world changed dramatically. We've had thousands of changes to the tax code. We have new currencies, payment platforms like PayPal, Venmo. We have the, the rise of, of the gig economy. And we fell behind. So we have a lot of work to do, a big to-do list in order to make up for those years where we fell behind. Do you have a sense of how much the agency will bring in in enforcement compared to other years, say this year or next year? Do you have any estimates of that? I don't have a specific estimate. I know that, for example, the Congressional Budget Office basically scored the Inflation Reduction Act 
as resulting in hundreds of billions of dollars in additional revenue that the IRS is going to be able to bring in because of these efforts. I would also point out that we recently had success using Inflation Reduction Act funds to close out 175 cases against tax-delinquent millionaires, and we collected $38 million in just a few months. Say to Americans who will look at cases like Hunter Biden's, um, uh, the president's sons, where he's now very publicly renegotiating a plea deal on charges that involve his taxes, or Donald Trump, who said that, um, you know, it was smart not to have to pay your income taxes. What do you say to the average American who says the rich and powerful have a very different uh, relationship to taxes and to a tax burden than the average person does? What Secretary Yellen has directed me to do is to hold the wealthy accountable for what they owe because that's where the IRS fell behind most significantly in the period leading up to the Inflation Reduction Act. Not on a new wave of audits for middle and low income, but to rebuild after years of underfunding in a way that is going to benefit all Americans because A, we're going to be able to answer the phones. B, we're going to be able to train our staff so that they can answer the latest tough questions that are coming in because of tax laws. We want your experience to be easier, and we now have the funds to invest. I think the Inflation Reduction Act provides the resources for us to build that. That's IRS Commissioner Danny Werfel. Thank you so much. Thank you, Aisha. to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 818. Coming up in about 15 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, you'll hear that this month, Washington became the first state to start deducting money from workers' paychecks to fund long-term care benefits. WBUR's Radio Boston would like your feedback on what you hear during the show. Tell us what you like, what you don't like, and what else you listen to. Take the Radio Boston survey at wbur.org slash survey. That's wbur.org slash survey. And thank you. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at wbur.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. I'm Windsor Johnston with these headlines. Leaders from more than a dozen African nations are meeting today to discuss the military takeover in Niger. The gathering comes a day after the European Union cut off financial support to the West African nation. The United States has threatened to do the same. The excessive heat is expected to ease up in parts of the southwest this week. Forecasters say temperatures in Phoenix on Monday may stay below 110 degrees for the first time in a month. Emergency crews in Greece say a massive wildfire on the resort island of Rhodes has been contained. Thousands of residents and tourists were forced to evacuate last week after the blaze intensified. 
I'm Windsor Johnston, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. From the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at WTGrantFDN.org. This is Week in Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. A remarkable campaign ad aired in Iowa earlier this month. It's from a group that supports Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis in the 2024 presidential race, and it attacks former President Trump. On its surface, it looks and sounds like a typical campaign ad, but something happens that makes this one very different. The ad features a soundbite of what sounds like former President Trump's voice. I opened up the governor position for Kim Reynolds, in which she fell behind. I endorsed her. But Trump never said those words. The voice in the ad was allegedly created using artificial intelligence to read something Trump wrote on social media. Hani Farid is a professor at the University of California, Berkeley, and a digital forensics expert, and he joins us now. Welcome. Good to be with you, Aisha. So AI can do a lot in this realm. What are the specific risks of using AI voices and using the voice of a candidate who you're running against with AI? I think there's two risks here that we have to think about. One is the ability to create an audio recording of your opponent saying things that they never said. But the other concern we should have is that when the candidate really does get caught saying something, How are we going to determine whether it's real or not? And think back to 2016 when Donald Trump was caught on the Access Hollywood tape. He apologized at the time because there was no out. But now it's fake. And so I think we have to worry about two things, the fake content, but also how are we going to validate the very real content that is going to emerge in the coming years? People who have listened to Trump talk a lot might notice it's a fake, but How close is this technology to creating a near-perfect copy that even someone who's listened to Trump a lot or listened to the person talk a lot may not be able to detect? There are still slight artifacts, and if you listen a few times, you'll probably catch those. But the technology is accelerating exceedingly fast, and you know what's going to happen because everything in the technology space works exactly the same way, which is every year or so, the technology gets much, much better, gets cheaper, and gets more ubiquitous. You also have to remember that the way this content is distributed through social media, people are not spending a lot of time analyzing this the way you or maybe I would. And so even if there are slight quirks in it, if things conform to our preconceived ideas, we are going to absorb them and we are going to move on to the next tweet or Facebook post or whatever it is because we move so fast online. Where do you see this technology being used most right now when it comes to politics? Is it being used in the 2024 presidential campaigns outside of this Iowa ad or is it happening more in state and local races where there'll be a lot less media attention? We're seeing it across the boards. And interestingly, mostly what we are seeing at the national level is the campaigns themselves. Um, Their PACs, their supporters are the ones creating it. They're not necessarily outsiders. 
We are seeing this absolutely at the state and local level as well. Those tend not to get as much national attention. But the fact is, is that this technology is very easy to use. You can go over to a, a commercial website and for $5 a month, you can clone anybody's voice and then you type and you have them say anything you want. And so I think it's very likely that we will see this continue. There are some state laws that regulate the use of AI or deep fakes in certain instances. Can you talk about what guardrails do exist? Yeah. So what's tricky here is it's not illegal to lie in a political ad. Most of the laws that exist are either toothless, that is, they're extremely hard to enforce, or they don't, are not broad enough to really cover the most extreme cases. There was a law, for example, here in California uh, that tried to ban political deepfakes. And it eventually got sunset because it was so ineffective. But the reason it was ineffective is, first of all, it required intent. You had to show that the person creating it intended to be deceptive. And proving that kind of intent is nearly impossible. It also said that they were banned only within 90 days of an election. What do you do 91 days before the election? And also, it's borderless. So if the person creating it and the person being affected is not in the state of California, the law has no impact. And so I think the guardrails are not going to come from a regulatory regime. I think the guardrails have to come from two places. One is the campaigns. The campaigns have to decide that it's not okay to use AI to distort the record of our opponents. And I would like to see them do that, but I'm also not naive. But the other place this can be done is in the services that are being used to create the fake content. They can start to say, well, we think that uh, cloning the voice of Trump and DeSantis and Biden and Harris may not be the best idea, and we just won't let you do that. But here's the other thing they can do. They can watermark and fingerprint every single piece of content that they produce. They can say, we are going to insert digital watermarks. We are going to extract digital fingerprints that will allow us to track this content over time so that... If they do end up in the wild, we have a reasonable ability to try to detect those and determine what's real and what's not. So at this point, do we have that ability to determine um, what is real and what is not? Can we figure that out? The answer is yes and no. The technology to do the watermarking and fingerprinting is available. The companies that, by the way, agree to voluntary principles with the White House on controlling and making sure that generative AI isn't used in malicious ways, now they actually have to start to deploy it. Now, on the flip side, there will be bad actors in this space. There will be people who don't use this technology. And that's when the work that I do and my students do here at UC Berkeley come into play, where we ingest an image or an audio or a video, and we analyze it and we try to determine if it's real or not. The problem with that approach, of course, is the half-life of a social media post is measured in minutes. So by the time we end up analyzing it and fact-checking it, it's great for the journalists, not so much for the millions of people who have already seen it online. But I think we need all these technologies. And of course, we still do need the government to step in, in in the most delicate way possible because we have to be careful not to infringe on the right of candidates to say what they want, but also putting in some regulatory controls here as well. That's Hani Farid, a professor at the University of California, Berkeley, and he is a digital forensics expert. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Aisha. One auto CEO likes to tell investors that his goal is to be boring, as in making money quarter after quarter, boringly predictable. But right now, the auto industry, while it's making a heck of a lot of money, isn't boring, and it sure isn't predictable, especially as there's this giant shift to electric vehicles. NPR's Camila Dominoski is here to bring us up to speed. Welcome to the program. Hi, Aisha. 
So when we say auto companies are making a heck of a lot of money, how much money are we talking about? How much green? A lot. So Stellantis, which makes Chrysler, Dodge, Jeep, and Ram, among others, they just set a record with the profits they just announced. Uh, GM is going to make more money this year than they thought, a cool billion dollars extra. So yeah, people are buying a lot of new cars, even though prices are high and taking out a loan is getting more expensive. So how do electric vehicles play into all of this? Right. It's a small part of the market now, but it's growing fast. And you have Tesla, which just dropped its prices on EVs and is still profitable. That is pushing down electric vehicle prices across the board, which is good news if you're shopping for an electric vehicle. It's a challenge for these companies that are racing to try to catch up with Tesla. What are companies doing? You've got Ford, which is tapping the brakes. They are still losing money on EVs. They lost a billion dollars on them last quarter. That same big number. Um, they want to stay in the race for the long term. So they just actually cut the price of the Ford Lightning, even though they're losing money. But they are pushing back their plans to really make a big push into EVs. Then you have Stellantis, which is slamming the accelerator. They are about to launch what they called an EV offensive in the United States. And in Europe, where electric vehicles are already a lot more popular, CEO Carlos Tavares said this. Every electrified vehicle that we sell is highly profitable. So he's obviously trying to persuade investors that this big offensive is going to pay off. And then you've got GM, which just whipped a U-turn. GM, which is going electric, they killed the Chevy Bolt, which is one of the cheapest EVs on the market, because while it was popular, it was not a profit machine. But now, just a few months later, they're bringing it back. So that was a big surprise. So what do you make of all of this? It's chaotic, right? Yeah. The industry is making a big change. They are doing this transition to electric vehicles. Even Ford said, while they're slowing down, that like we know EVs are coming. That's not a question, right? When are they coming? How do we get there? Those are really big questions. And there's known challenges, right? Battery minerals, having enough chargers. How do we recycle batteries? But there's going to be surprises too. So GM, this week, they said they're having trouble getting their battery production lines up to speed because some assembly line robots aren't as fast as they were supposed to be. So, you know, there you go, a surprise. That wasn't on my bingo card. Yeah, well, well speaking of production, how does all of this affect workers? It's a huge upheaval for the industry. Electric vehicles are simpler to build, so that's fewer assembly jobs at car plants. There's more jobs than at battery plants that are being built, which raises questions like, will those be unionized, right? Talks between the United Auto Workers Union and the Detroit Big Three automakers, they're happening right now. Electrification is a huge topic at the table. So are these monster profits, right? The UAW sees this as an opportunity. You know, you're making so much money. You can afford to give us cost of living wage increases, right? Among other things. The companies, on the other hand, they would rather give out bonuses instead of wage increases. So they only pay out more when business is good and they're not on the hook on a bad year, for instance. These talks, they're they're intense. A strike is definitely on the table. Like I said, these are not boring times. Uh, not at all. Uh, NPR's Camila Dominoski, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. We take you now to southern Turkey, where an ongoing archaeological dig has been turning up a trove of ancient artifacts, some dating back thousands of years. NPR's Peter Kenyon visited the site and has this report. 
The site, known as Zerzavan Castle, is generally known as a Roman-era military garrison. But as archaeologists have painstakingly excavated the site, it has yielded up underground living areas with layer after layer of artifacts that are far older, some of which appear to be unique to this site. Aitach Choskun heads up the excavation team. He says it was nearly 20 years ago, while on a visit to the nearby city of Diyarbakir, that he came upon this place and knew he had to start digging. I first came to Diyarbakir in 2005, and in 2006, when I saw this hill, I saw some pieces of artifacts, and I knew this is an old settlement, and no excavation had been done before. So as soon as I saw it, I knew it had to be a dig, because there must be something significant underneath. Choskun says the initial excavation at the southern end of the site revealed, among other things, the remains of an ancient church that was gradually being exposed to the elements and needed protection. He says as they moved on to the northern section, they also found a temple known as the Mithras Temple, dedicated to a god popular among Roman soldiers. After several years of work here, Choskun says he's convinced the layers of artifacts here will keep this site on the archaeological map for a long time. The digging we're doing inside the castle walls is 57,000 square meters. It's a huge area. And outside of it, including here, is like 10 million square meters. And right now, Zerzavan Castle and Mithras Temple are in the temporary World Heritage List of UNESCO. We are working to get the site included in UNESCO's permanent list of World Heritage Sites. Among the important finds, he says, is a beautifully preserved and ornately decorated Roman-era bronze baptismal bucket that's on display at the Diyarbakir Archaeological Museum. He says they also found an Assyrian-era stamp, a kind of official seal carved into stone that Choshkun says dates back some 3,000 years. Choskun and his colleagues point out more of what's been found here, an underground church, a huge rock altar, a long water canal, and more. He believes perhaps 1,500 or more people, military and civilian, may have lived here in times of peace. And during wartime, it's possible 10,000 or more people from the surrounding area sought shelter here. That, he says, could explain the underground living areas. He says based on what's been unearthed so far, it's not an exaggeration to say the Zerzavan Castle Mithras Temple site has the potential to change our understanding of this part of the world and its archaeological and architectural history. And there's more to come. It's totally open to new discoveries, that's for sure. We don't know what else we'll find. We've only dug around 10% of the area on the surface within the castle walls. And beyond the castle walls, you see more living areas, an 8-kilometer wall canal, the necropolis where the leading families buried their dead, and ceremonial areas, so there will be more to come. As an example, Choshkun says so far they've excavated six residential complexes within the castle walls. There are 99 more still below the surface. That's just one reason he believes this site will continue to offer up contributions to human knowledge of times past for many years to come. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, in Diyarbakir Province, Turkey. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. When older people in the U.S. end up needing long-term care in a nursing home or from a home health aide, most have to pay out of pocket. The cost can be huge. This month, Washington became the first state to try to address the problem with a public long-term care benefit funded through a payroll tax. From member station KUOW in Seattle, Eilish O'Neill has more. 
Every morning, Veronica Tausili uses a lift to swing her mom out of bed. So this is the Hoyer lift right here. It's my best friend. <laughs> Tausili's mom has been bedridden for more than three years because of complications from diabetes, a broken femur, and cancer. I have to go in every morning, undress her, and then got to clean her all up. You got to lift her up with the Hoyer lift so I can change her sheets. Tausili and her mom live in her sister's house, about an hour south of Seattle. In 2020, Tausili quit her job as an escrow officer to take care of her mom full time. She cashed out her retirement to pay her bills. Since then, she's rarely had a day off. If I'm going to go out, I'm always on a time limit because I've got to make sure I'm back home to change mom. Tausili's mom won't be able to benefit from the state's new long-term care program. You have to pay in for at least three years to get anything out. If the program already existed, it would not cover full-time care for Tausili's mom. But Tausili says she could use it for respite care, or she could have hired an in-home caregiver after she hurt her shoulder in a car crash and couldn't lift her mom. Here in the U.S., we're heavily reliant on family caregivers because we don't have a public system in place. David Grabowski is a professor at Harvard who researches health care policy. He says paying for long-term care is a challenge for families nationwide. That's because Medicare doesn't cover long-term care. Private long-term care insurance is expensive and usually has caps on benefits. Many don't even qualify for it if they have pre-existing conditions. So people have two options, spend down all their savings and go on Medicaid or turn to family. Unpaid care is not free. We place this care largely on women and lower income individuals. Individuals often have to take time off from work to provide this care. About seven in 10 people will need long-term care at some point. With Washington's new payroll tax, the state automatically takes money from most people's paychecks each month. Then, if they need help with basic tasks of daily living, they can apply for a lifetime benefit of up to $36,500, a number that will grow with inflation. The future is a little scary, but it'll be in the back of my brain that at least I have that benefit. Kathy McCall is the advocacy director at AARP Washington and a proponent of the new program. McCall says people could use the money to pay for in-home care, respite care, or... A lot of people just need a ramp built on their house in order to still live at home, or maybe it's just meal delivery. Those opposed to the new program include some of the state's Republican lawmakers who say the private insurance market offered better options. This is a woefully inadequate program. State Senator John Brown gave a press conference shortly after the payroll tax went into effect. He said the new program doesn't provide enough money to pay the full cost of long-term care, and another tax is bad for Washingtonians. It's going to be one more step that makes Washington state unaffordable for a whole group of workers. Supporters of the tax agree it isn't enough money to pay for years of care. They see it as a stopgap during short-term crises or a way to help people stay in their homes for longer. Meanwhile, other states are moving in the same direction. California is considering a tax similar to Washington's, and several others are studying options. For NPR News, I'm Alicia Neal in the Seattle area. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Vice President Kamala Harris addressed delegates at the NAACP National Convention in Boston yesterday. Among the topics she covered, racial disparities in the criminal justice system. Thinking about how we restructure, how we think about what causes people to enter the system 
and addressing those things before it becomes something we react to thereafter. Harris also discussed attacks on individual rights and the upcoming election, and she reminded delegates that their activism makes a difference in voting outcomes. Some musical celebrations are set for Cambridge and Boston today. The Cambridge Jazz Festival is a free event and begins at 12.30 at Danahy Park. New England's largest celebration of gospel music takes place today at the Liederbank Pavilion in Boston. Doors open at 3 o'clock for the free public concert, including performances by Fred Hammond and the Mayor's Gospel Choir. Last night in San Francisco, the Red Sox lost to the Giants 3-2. to They play again this afternoon. It is 64 degrees in Boston today and tomorrow, mostly sunny with highs both days in the upper 70s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we gave the Southwest some advice in dealing with the record heat. Maybe, Phoenix, you should not have named your city after a bird most famous for bursting into flames. I'm Karen Chi, in for Peter Sagal. Join us for more chit-chat about the weather with our guest, actor director Randall Park, on this week's news quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Hint's 25 flavors include blackberry, coconut, and blueberry lemon. In stores or at hintwater.com. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and I hope y'all have been drinking a lot of caffeine this morning because you know what? It's time to play the puzzle. Joining us today is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Good to talk to you, Will. Good morning, Aisha. So, Will, please remind us of last week's challenge. Yes, I said, name a classic TV show in two words, in which the respective words rhyme with the first and last names of a famous writer. Four letters in the first name, five letters in the last. Who is it? Well, the show is Get Smart. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. And that rhymes with Bret Hart. Get Smart, I remember because of the shoe phone, right? Yeah, that's it. That's it. My Nick at Night is is paying off. I did not get this correct, though. But we got just over 400 correct submissions. And this week's winner is Mary Butler of Columbus, Nebraska. Congratulations and welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. So how long have you been playing the puzzle? I've been playing on and off for about five years. So how did you get this one? Well, I don't watch that many TV shows, so I just looked up a list of classic TV shows. <laughs> that was a smart way to do it. That was a smart way to do it. So <laughs> what do you like to do when you're not playing the puzzle? I like doing crossword puzzles, and I also like doing crafts like sewing. Oh, okay. Well, Mary, are you ready to play the puzzle? I'm ready as I'll ever be. <laughs> All right. Take it away, Will. All right, Mary and Aisha, I'm going to give you some words 
For each one, think of something that starts with the first letter of my word and that fits in the category named by the rest of my word. For example, if I said factor, you would be looking for the name of an actor that starts with the letter F. Some of these have multiple answers. All you need to do is think of one. Okay. Number one is SCAR, S-C-A-R. Mm -hmm. Looking for a make of car starting with S. Okay. Um, I, do, you, do you know a lot you know of- you know one, yeah. Aisha? I, I know. I, oh, you got one, Mary? I'm not a car person. <laughs> okay. I'm like a Sonata. A oh, Sonata? Well, that's more a model, <laughs> a but model. I'll give that to you. You could have said Subaru, Smart, or Suzuki. Those would have all worked. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. I never know make or model. I always get confused. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here's your next one. Aisle. A-I-S-L-E. You know the ABC Islands? You know what the A of the ABC Islands is? I'm not familiar. Gotcha. My grandma used to go here. My grandparents would go here a lot. They loved it. Go ahead. Aruba. Aruba. Oh, okay. <laughs> Could have said Antigua, Anguilla. Those would have also worked. Here's your next one. Crank. C-R-A-N-K. Uh, Colonel. Colonel, Captain, Corporal. Those all work. Broom. B-R-O-O-M. Bedroom. Bedroom, bathroom, right? Thorn. T-H-O-R-N. Trombone. Excellent. Tuba trumpet also work. How about this? Bride, B-R-I-D-E. And you're looking for a ride at an amusement park. <sighs> and this is one of my favorite rides. You uh, get in it and you try to ram other people. Oh, yeah. Oh, bumper cars. Bumper cars, right. Okay. Swine, S-W-I-N-E. Oh, I don't, I'm not a big wine drinker. <laughs> yeah, you know these names, though. Uh, <sighs> well, yes. Um, um, I'll tell you, you could have said Sauvignon Blanc, oh, Syrah, Sauterne, yeah. Shiraz, Sherry, Sangria. Those all work. Okay. How about Cape, C-A-P-E? Mm. Okay. Can you think of an ape starting with C-H? Chimpanzee. Oh, good. Oh, good. Chimpanzee yeah. is it. And here's your last one. Trapper. T-R-A-P-P-E-R. Travis Scott. Yes. Wow. Yes. Excellent. Good, good. I was going for T-Pain, T-I, Tupac. Those also all work. <laughs> That's great. Well, Mary, look, that was a tough one, but you did a great job. Thank you. <laughs> How do you feel? Um, less nervous now. <laughs> <laughs> For playing our puzzle today, you'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And Mary, what member station do you listen to? I actually listen on the NPR One app. Oh, that is nice. That's very modern. We like that. <laughs> That's Mary Butler of Columbus, Nebraska. Thank you for playing the puzzle. Thank you for having me. Okay, Will, what's next week's challenge? Yes, it comes from listener Jim Vespi of Mamaroneck, New York. Name a well-known U.S. city in nine letters. Change the third and fifth letters to get the name of a beverage. What is it? So again, a well-known U.S. city, nine letters. Change the third and fifth letters to get the name of a beverage. What beverage is it? 
When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries is Thursday, August 3rd at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Aisha. A metal goober looms large over the I-75 running through Georgia. Ashley Miller is in its shadow. I am out front in front of the world's largest peanut monument. Miller is the executive director of the Ashburn-Turner County Chamber of Commerce, and she led the effort to restore the brittle statue after it fell during Hurricane Michael in 2018. The hurricane, it was about five hours of just pure hurricane. It was one of the strongest ones we'd ever seen. And because the peanut had been up for so long, it was in need of repair anyway, but it ended up falling over. It was made of fiberglass, so it just kind of cracked and uh, we had to get it back up. But why was it so important to bring it back to life? Back in 1975, the community wanted to recognize that Ashburn was the largest peanut grower. We were the largest peanut growers um, per capita for our land mass in the state of Georgia. And they decided we needed to have a landmark that would make us stand out. And boy, does it stand out. The new statue is made of sheet metal and is a little bit bigger than the original, 16 and a half feet tall, 8 feet wide, and stands on a 20-foot pedestal. And for Ashburn residents, it's a source of pride. We definitely respect and, and honor our farmers who are the peanut farmers today. You know, that's a big part of our economy, you know, for us is the peanut farmer. That's Hugh Hardy, who owns Carol's Sausage and Country Store. We're located right beside the big peanut there on the interstate. So the store is basically the jelly to the peanut. Heidi says that when it fell, he saw less traffic in his store. And then since the peanut monument has went back up, that has picked back up again tremendously. You know, now we see a steady flow of traffic going down. People go by the peanut, they get pictures taken, and then obviously I, a lot of them are visiting my store before they hit the interstate again. So definitely glad to have it back up for sure. Ava Joyner was glad too. She was visiting the statue with her two teenagers. We were having a conversation and I was jogging their memory about when Ashton Kutcher took a picture with the peanut and we went viral or worldwide at that point and they couldn't remember it. So I just wanted them to come and see it up close. Joyner is an educator and the peanut is a symbol to her students. One of our pathways at the high school um, is agriculture. So I think it is important to educate our students on what um, we're known for here in Turner County. And finally, Miller says that when you're driving down that highway, you'll always know where you are. Everyone knows when you see the peanut, you're home. You're here in Ashburn, Turner County. That was Ashley Miller, Ava Joyner, and Hugh Hardy. When Republicans have controlled the Congress on both sides of the aisle of president, they've not done it. When Democrats have controlled, they've not done it. It is raising the minimum wage. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, the case for giving workers more than $7.25 an hour. Listen live on your phone by going to your favorite public radio station's website or to npr.org. Here's a taste of what I'm hearing around my house this summer. 
I'm bored. Yep, those are my babies. I I love them, but they need to be kept busy. And that's where our next guest comes in. Matt De La Pena writes for kids of all ages. He won a Newbery Medal for the picture book Last Stop on Market Street and accolades for his YA book, Mexican White Boy. We asked him for some suggestions to keep kids busy with books, part of our summer series asking authors for reading recommendations. Hi, Matt. Hello, Aisha. I'm excited to talk books with you. I know you brought some picks for all ages. Let's start with the little ones. One that seems really perfect for summer is When You Can Swim by Jack Wong. Tell us about that. Yeah, this is a great new picture book, and it follows a diverse cast of families imagining all the fun water activities they could do together, like going to the beach, slipping into a pond at night, swimming to an island for wild blueberries. But the book lands on kids learning to swim. So first, they have to be water safe. And I love this because so many kids right now are taking swim lessons, and it seems kind of, you know, laborious. They don't maybe want to go there every week. But it unlocks so many cool summer activities. And personally, I have a daughter who's nine who's like a fish, And then I have a son who's five who refuses to put his head underwater. (laughs) So this hits home for so many parents. You've got another picture book recommendation. And this one, it's about a rock? Yeah, so this is called The Rock from the Sky by John Clausen. And he's one of my favorite author illustrators because he kind of pushes the boundaries of what a picture book can be. Usually it's, you know, 32, 40 pages. Well, this one is 100 pages. It has five chapters. And what I love is there's no moralizing, there's no big lesson at the end. It's just fun. And the pictures are incredible, but the dialogue is just as good. It features a turtle, an armadillo, and a snake. They're all wearing their own kind of hat. And there's this rock, this asteroid that's coming down, and it gives the sense of like impending doom. It's the kind of book where you can read over and over and over. And because there are five little stories in there, you don't necessarily need to read the whole thing every time you sit down at night. So my son and I have probably read this over 100 times, and I don't know who's left more, me or him. You also have some recommendations for middle schoolers, including one from the author who really hit it big with The Hate You Give. What book is this? Okay, so Angie Thomas, we all know her for The Hate You Give and several of her other realistic YA fiction novels. But here she is coming to us with a middle-grade fantasy novel. It's called Nick Blake and the Remarkables, The Manifestor Prophecy. This book is so much fun, perfect for summer because it's big. You know, there's a lot at stake. It features Nick Blake, a young girl, and her father, and she's trying to sort of figure out how she can prove that he's not the person that other people think he is. So I love that as a father. She's protecting her father. But I also love what Angie Thomas does here in terms of weaving in African and African-American folklore. So yes, this is a fun story. It's exciting. It's entertaining. But there's also a lot of historical elements that are sort of holding up the book. And This is a proposed series, so if you have a young person who loves this book, you can look forward to a couple more coming down the line. 
So do you have some picks for the young adults? You know, do you have some picks for them? I do. So I brought in two books for older readers. The first one's called Pedro and Daniel, and it's by Federico Arabia. I guess I would label it as like a semi-autobiographical YA novel that's written in both prose and poetry that has illustrations by Julie Kwan. Why did I bring this book in? I think it's one of the most powerful sibling stories I've read in a while. Pedro and Daniel are gay, neurodivergent, Mexican-American boys growing up in this crazy, kind of chaotic household in rural Ohio. But it's really great to see in this chaotic household how they are each other's lifelines. That's something I really, really responded to in this book. It's a debut. So this is the first work by this author. And I think we're going to hear more from this author in the future. Also, the book is written in beautiful language that you can really savor. And it's got both English and Spanish. So I think the two characters will steal readers' hearts. Mm. And what's the second book? The second one I brought in is called Foster by Claire Keegan. It was originally published for the adult market. But sometimes I think these categories are a little bit silly. I would say Foster has one of the most engaging and authentic young narrators I've ever come across in any category. So here's the basic premise. Um, a young unnamed girl is sent to live with relatives in a rural Irish town because her parents are about to have yet another baby and they're really struggling to make ends meet. And at first the narrator feels abandoned like any kid might, but she ends up growing really close to the childless couple who takes her in. It's a really moving short novella, really. It's spare, funny, and I would actually say this is one of the best books I've read in five years. I actually have bought over a dozen copies that I end up handing out to people when I'm on the road visiting schools because it's a book I want other people to read. Matt De La Pena's most recent book is Patchwork. Thank you so much for these great suggestions. Well, thank you so much for having me and happy reading, everyone. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed. Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting those working to improve the nation's immigration system and celebrating the contributions of immigrants to American life. More at Carnegie.org slash Great Immigrants. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. Thanks for joining 90.9 WBUR on this Sunday morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Tomorrow on WBUR, you'll get the story on hundreds of school districts hiring a company called Paper to virtually tutor their students. The company won tens of millions of dollars worth of contracts by promising one-on-one -on -one help from subject experts at any time of day. That did not necessarily happen. You'll hear how and why the problems developed. That's tomorrow at noon here on WBUR.
It is 64 degrees in Boston today and tomorrow, mostly sunny, highs in the upper 70s. Sunshine on Tuesday, a slight chance of showers Tuesday and highs in the upper 70s. We know how dangerous extreme heat can be for our bodies, but what about our minds? Research is beginning to show that hotter conditions can also slow down your thinking. We saw reductions in the order of 10% in the response times and also their accuracy to these uh, cognitive tests. Heat's effect on our cognitive functions on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again Monday morning on 90.9 WBUR. I'm All Things Considered host Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. The U.S. economy once again was stronger than expected in the second quarter. Are we headed for a soft landing? And LeBron James' son suffered cardiac arrest last week. We talked to a doctor about heart-related risk for young athletes. Plus, get down, get down. George Brown, a cool in the gang, breaks down the band's classic sound and what it takes to make timeless hits. Being untrained or teaching ourselves how to play, you come up with these ideas that are not in the books. You're, you're off the page. It's Sunday, July 30th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. France is warning that it will retaliate if its citizens are attacked in Niger. The remarks from the French president's office came shortly after protesters tried to enter the French embassy in Niger's capital today. France and the United Nations have cut off aid to the West African nation following last week's military takeover. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports Niger has been a security partner of many Western countries, including France. Niger has also been a key partner of the European Union in helping curb the flow of migrants from sub-Saharan Africa. With the coup d'etat, such cooperation is in jeopardy. Niger's foreign allies so far have refused to recognize the new military government led by General Omar Tiani, who was previously head of the presidential guard. The African Union has also issued a 15-day ultimatum to the junta in Niger to reinstall the country's democratically elected government. Niger was previously seen as the most stable country among several unstable neighbors. A coup in neighboring Mali two years ago brought in a junta that kicked out French troops and is now working with Russian Wagner mercenaries. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. The Economic Community of West African States announced today that it's suspending ties with Niger and has authorized the use of force if the country's president is not reinstated within a week. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is pushing back against demands from the Australian government to end the prosecution of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. Speaking at a press conference before he left Australia, Blinken said Assange has been accused of very serious criminal conduct in publishing a trove of classified documents more than a decade ago. The actions that uh, he is uh, alleged to have committed risked very serious harm 
to our national security, to the benefit of our adversaries, and put named human sources at grave risk. Assange is currently fighting extradition to the United States. Apple and Amazon are among many companies that will update investors this week on how they performed in the last quarter. There will also be new data on the labor market, as NPR's David Gura reports. After the Federal Reserve raised interest rates again by a quarter point, Fed Chair Jerome Powell emphasized how much economic data he and his colleagues will see between then and the Fed's next meeting in September. There will be new inflation numbers and two jobs reports. The Labor Department will release the first one on Friday, jobs data for the month of July. And while there's new optimism the Fed will be able to win its fight against high inflation without triggering a recession, economists will be on the lookout for a lower-than-expected jobs number or a jump in the unemployment rate. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Vice President Kamala Harris is urging the NAACP to organize and get out the vote in the next presidential election. Appearing at the group's national convention in Boston last night, Harris credited the civil rights group with helping get President Biden elected. Major political leaders in Massachusetts also addressed the delegates. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu said she's proud of the city's progress on being more inclusive and welcoming. In Boston, we measure our pride not in where we've been, but how far we've come and how we are blazing the path forward together. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley said Boston is honest about its racial strife. We do not sweep under the rug the history of redlining or the painful brutality of busing. And as long as I'm at the table, I will be speaking some plain truth. The NAACP is encouraging delegates today to attend an interfaith prayer service and the 23rd annual Gospel Fest in Boston. Police are searching for a suspect who fled the scene of a fatal crash in Topsfield. State police say the car crash Friday killed a Cape Cod man and injured three others. The driver of a 2008 GMC Acadia SUV stopped suddenly on I-95. Other cars swerved to avoid hitting the car and then crashed. The SUV driver and passenger ran away from the crash. State troopers arrested the passenger, a 30-year-old from Lynn. They've not yet found the driver, who police say also is from Lynn. Boston is drying out. After thunderstorms walloped the city, the National Weather Service says yesterday Boston got just over three inches of rain. That is the fifth wettest single day during July since record-keeping began more than 150 years ago. In the forecast today and tomorrow, you can expect mostly sunny skies in Boston with highs in the upper 70s. On Tuesday, sunshine with a slight chance of showers and highs again in the upper 70s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org.
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. And it's an especially good morning because we're starting with good news. There's been a string of positive economic reports in the U.S., stronger growth than expected, a pretty resilient jobs market, and inflation has continued to cool. So much good news, in fact, that the U.S. economy may be headed toward what the Federal Reserve's been hoping for, a soft landing. That means inflation has been brought under control without triggering a recession. NPR business correspondent David Gura joins us now. Hi, David. Hey, Aisha. So, David, is this it? Is this the soft landing? So, look, I I think we can all agree that this has been a journey as the Federal Reserve has tried to get historically high inflation under control by cooling down the U.S. economy without kickstarting a recession, which is such a tricky thing. The Fed has been raising interest rates really aggressively with the goal of making people and businesses spend less. Of course, that can lead to layoffs. And the challenge here is not going overboard. The Fed doesn't want to see mass layoffs. And they have clearly been making some progress. You know, just about a year ago, inflation was astronomically high. It was above 9%. It's now a third of that. And I think it's worth us remembering how the Fed has tried to bring that down. The Fed has made it so much more expensive to borrow money in a very short period of time. In a matter of months, interest rates have gone from zero to five and a quarter percent, the highest that they've been in decades. I put your question to Diane Swank, the chief economist at KPMG. I said, you know, Given all that the Fed's done, how far we've come, and that inflation is down significantly, we don't have a recession, is this that elusive soft landing? Here's what she said. We're not there yet, but the hope is certainly high that we could get there. She says we've hit a pocket of nice air. The flight has gotten a little bit smoother. I think we're getting to that moment when there's that announcement to put your trade tables up and your seat backs in their upright position. Okay, but then it, it can take 30 minutes before they actually land. Like, it's a long time. A lot can happen in that. So we're maybe in the final approach. And that's got to be a good thing, though, that there's been so little economic turbulence lately, right? Yeah, we have started our descent, but we still don't know how smooth or bumpy the landing is going to be. And to your point, how long we're going to circle before that landing <laughs> yeah. takes place. I think that there are still some unknowns despite all of the economic data we've seen lately trending in the right direction. Look, on the positive side, we learned this past week the economy grew faster than Wall Street economists expected in the last few months. That's a good thing. But a lot of economists say we still don't know how these higher interest rates are going to affect the overall economy. We saw some immediate effects. Higher mortgage rates slowed down the housing market. What Dana Peterson is paying close attention to are our spending habits in the second half of the year. She's the chief economist at the conference board. Certainly when we ask consumers, what are you thinking about in terms of buying services? They're saying that they're going to buy fewer things that they want and more things that they need. That may be what they're saying, but it seems like right now, at least, they're still buying things they want. Now, many Americans are still eating out. They're still traveling, staying in hotels. And a critical question is, what's going to happen when they cut back? Another big question is, what will happen in a few weeks when millions of us have to start paying back our student loans after pausing them during the pandemic? We've talked a lot about a soft landing. How hopeful are economists that we can avoid the alternative, a recession? The mood has changed for the better. There is much more optimism, and many private forecasters, these are economists who work for financial firms, have been revising their economic outlooks given the recent data that we've seen. A soft landing is still by no means a sure thing, but they think it's more and more likely. 
You know, the Fed just raised rates again by another quarter point after it took a pause in June. And Fed Chair Jerome Powell told reporters he still believes there is a path to a soft landing. He thinks he and his colleagues can do what they need to do without triggering a deep downturn, that he can avoid a recession. And he said something notable about the Fed's staff of economists. This is a big group. There are hundreds of them. Powell says they expect slower growth. Given the resilience of the economy recently, they are no longer forecasting a recession. Now, at his news conference, Powell said he is not comfortable using the word optimistic to describe how he's feeling. He says he recognizes things could change on a dime. And like many economists, he's reluctant to make too much out of a few good data points. But we are definitely hearing the word recession a lot less than we were, Aisha. And there is still a lot more talk about avoiding one. NPR's David Gura, thank you so much. Thank you. Last week, LeBron James's son, Bronny James, suffered a cardiac arrest during basketball practice with the University of Southern California's basketball team. The 18-year-old joins the team as a freshman this fall. James was released a few days later, and his workup will be ongoing, according to a statement from the hospital. But some people online, such as Elon Musk, were quick to speculate, linking James's cardiac event to the COVID-19 vaccine. And even though doctors are saying this is misinformation, that message still circulates. Joining us now is Dr. Matthew Martinez. He's the director of sports cardiology at the Morristown Medical Center in New Jersey. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. And we're excited to talk about this important topic. Elon Musk, without evidence, claims that Bronny James's cardiac arrest was caused by myocarditis, um, which can be a side effect of the COVID vaccine. But uh, how common is that actually? So let's dig into it. So myocarditis is a known cause of cardiac arrest in young athletes. In general, sudden death in young athletes is uncommon, occurring somewhere between 1 in 50,000 and 1 in 100,000 athletes in the United States every single year. So myocarditis is on the list of potential complications. It was here before COVID. It will be here after COVID, but it is not one of the more common causes we think about with regards to sudden cardiac arrest in athletes in total. Can you explain what myocarditis is? And even though you have you can have cardiac arrest and not die, like, is that a difference? Because you're talking about sudden death, but Bronnie James is still here, you know, thankfully. Sure. So let's take a half step back. So often these, these terms get thrown around and they're confusing. Sudden cardiac arrest or sudden cardiac death is when the heart is functioning fine ahead of time. There's no blockages. And you have a heartbeat one minute and no heartbeat the next. Your heart simply stops. Either the heart muscle is abnormal, there's an electrical change, or there's something yet to be discovered inside your heart that uh, falls into that sudden unexplained death category. Now, myocarditis is inflammation of the heart muscle, and that can come from viruses, and that can lead to the heart stopping. It can lead to the heart becoming weakened and that is a known cardiac arrest risk in young athletes. Is it true that black male athletes are more likely to suffer from um, these issues than white athletes? 
absolutely right. There are some differences in who may be at risk. So men more than women, African-American men are at the highest risk. And then there are some sports like football, soccer, and basketball, which seem to have the highest risk amongst the sports where we see more cardiac events. Some athletes at the collegiate level do undergo medical screenings, but are these screenings enough? And what pre-screenings should athletes go through to rule out underlying health problems that could lead to this sort of medical episode? It's an important conversation. And I always think about the evaluations of an athlete from a cardiac standpoint really in three pieces. So the first is a pre-event assessment. So a, a good physical exam, a comprehensive history, knowing about who they are, what type of athlete they are, their family history and their own personal history goes into a discussion about what their potential risks may be. An electrocardiogram and an echocardiogram are part of the professional athlete assessments and are more and more common in collegiate and high school sports, but in no way are they perfect. And in no way are they uh, going to eliminate risks in everyone. So it's a reminder that pre-assessments are important, but it doesn't eliminate the real benefit. And the real benefit of of how we can all handle athletes, and I'm, I'm hoping this is a big takeaway from this, emergency action plans, hands-only CPR, and the early use of an AED when indicated is the best way to improve the survival of our athletes throughout the United States. It's the chain of survival that we've seen more wins with in the last several years than in any other way we've done it. Mm. What advice then do you have for young athletes and families who may have concerns, you know, seeing all of this in the news? So my advice for everyone is to do the following. Anyone can be a first responder. It doesn't take long to understand how to do hands-only CPR. It doesn't take long to know how to deliver the an AED quickly and how to use it. So if you're in a community, what you should be asking yourself is, can I deliver what those USC folks have done twice this year where they've practiced an emergency action plan? They know who's going to get the defibrillator, who's going to call 911, who's going to start CPR. They know the signs and symptoms and the and the features of what sudden cardiac arrest looks like in a young athlete, and then they act quickly. These are rare events, but when it happens, you got to be prepared. I think that's the message. That's Dr. Matthew Martinez, Director of Sports Cardiology at the Morristown Medical Center. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. What a great conversation, and I really love that you're bringing this to, to the community. This is how we're going to improve the outcomes for athletes. to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up in about 15 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, a family trip to see the Barbie movie at the Wellfleet Drive-In sparks thoughts on toys, friendship, and existential angst. I'm an adult with a job and a robust collection of Birkenstocks, but I still feel like a teenager sometimes. I'm still thinking, isn't this all supposed to make some sort of sense by now? And later this hour, a conversation with the founding member of Cool in the Gang.
Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. I'm Windsor Johnston with these headlines. The economic community of West African states is calling for the full restoration of constitutional order in Niger following a military takeover last week. The bloc says it's also suspending ties with Niger and has authorized the use of force if the country's president is not reinstated within a week. Kenya says it's preparing to send 1,000 police officers to Haiti. The move is part of an international effort to stabilize the country amid an increase in gang violence. Vice President Kamala Harris is reiterating her call for stricter gun control measures and expanded access to abortion. Harris delivered the keynote address to a national gathering of the NAACP in Boston last night. I'm Windsor Johnston, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food on the web at theschmidt.org. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. It's been two and a half years since a mob violently stormed the U.S. Capitol and tried to overturn the results of the 2020 election. We want Trump! We want Trump! We Now special counsel Jack Smith appears to be on the verge of indicting former President Donald Trump for alleged crimes related to the attempt to overturn the election. More than 1,100 people have already been charged in connection with the Capitol riot, and the former president's name has come up a lot in those cases. NPR's investigative team has been tracking all the cases, and NPR's Tom Dreisbach has been looking at where Trump fits in. Good morning, Tom. Hey, good morning. How has Trump come up in the cases of those who rioted on January 6th? You know, following these cases from the very beginning of these investigations, Trump's name is just all over the records, especially in one key moment, which was one month before the riot when Trump tweeted that there would be a protest in D.C. on January 6th and said, will be wild. The records include Facebook messages and tweets from people who responded and then at that moment started making plans to come to D.C. There's this one message that really sticks out to me from a guy who texted his friend, if Trump tells us to storm the bleeping Capitol, I'm going to do that then. He did storm the Capitol and he was sentenced to two months in prison. You know, and on January 6th itself, when Trump said people should march to the Capitol, people listened, uh, according to the records. And some of those people ended up actually storming the building. Has anyone tried to blame Trump for what they did? 
You know, some people are totally unrepentant about what happened on January 6th. I've talked to them from jail in some cases. But for others, there's this kind of a theme in the cases that Trump told us the election was stolen. We believed him. He told us to come to D.C. on January 6th and march to the Capitol. He's the commander in chief. We listened. But now they feel like Trump misled them. One defendant wrote from jail to the judge in his case and said he loathed Trump and that, quote, Trump's words and actions are nefarious, causing pain and harm to the world, and that January 6th left a scar Trump is responsible for. Is that an effective argument with judges, though? Yeah, at sentencing, you get a sense that judges are listening a little bit for whether someone takes responsibility for their actions. And when people say they realize they were misled about the election, some judges do seem open to hearing that. I've heard judges reference Trump and say basically that he did whip up the crowd with election lies in their view. But as an actual legal defense, Trump made me do it is is not really effective, it seems. So how has Trump come up in the cases of those who rioted on January 6th? Yeah, in one case, there is this rioter who stormed the Capitol and he stole a bottle of bourbon and a coat rack. And then he tried that kind of version of a defense. Trump made me do it. The jury convicted him. And then at his sentencing, Judge Reggie Walton, who was actually appointed by George W. Bush, Judge Walton said January 6th brought to mind Nazi Germany when, quote, a very educated, intelligent population was able to be swayed to engage in the atrocities based upon a demagogue. Judge Walton said if the rioters had their way, you would have made this country, in a sense, a dictatorship. So Judge Walton said he needed to send a strong message as a deterrent. And and that man was sentenced to three years in prison. So how do you think those cases might fit in with the Trump indictment if and when it comes? From what we understand, based on widespread reporting so far, the special counsel has not told Trump that he's under investigation for actually inciting the crowd with that speech on January 6th. And that would be kind of the clearest way the rioters would be connected to the Trump prosecution. Legal experts say that charge would be potentially tricky. Incitement can be difficult to prove. There are First Amendment defenses Trump could raise. The charges that seem to be most under consideration at the moment seem to be focused on the effort by Trump and his allies to overturn the election by enlisting the so-called fake electors, pressuring state election officials, the Department of Justice, and ultimately Vice President Pence. And the January 6th committee in Congress said that rioters could play a role in finding the intent needed to make those criminal charges stick. The committee said because Trump watched the rioters storm the Capitol and waited hours to tell people to leave, that shows he acted with corrupt intent. But, you know, we'll have to see what the special counsel, Jack Smith, decides in the end. NPR investigative correspondent Tom Dreisbach. Tom, thanks so much. Thanks, Aisha. Extreme heat is not kind to infrastructure. This summer, interstate highways in Texas and Utah buckled, causing major traffic delays. Last summer, high temperatures twisted railroad tracks outside San Francisco and caused an airport runway in England to seem to melt. And we can expect more of the same as climate change brings higher temperatures around the globe. Here to explain why this is happening is Professor Amit Basin at the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Aisha. So I hear there are two different types of roadways, asphalt and concrete, and they each have their own problems. And I will admit asphalt, concrete, I don't quite know the difference. And then don't start talking about cement. I don't know the difference. So let me let me know. I'll be honest. 
And that's perfectly fine. So most of the roads in the U.S. are asphalt pavements, but there are also several significant highways and roadways that are concrete pavements. So concrete is a very rigid material. You, of course, use it for construction of buildings and so forth. When the temperature goes up, it starts to expand. And because it expands, you need to accommodate that expansion somewhere in the pavement, right? So that is done either by providing joints or steel reinforcement and allowing very small cracks to occur and so forth. This is all part of the design. I mean, we design it to handle this range of temperature. But now if I have much more than what I designed this lab for in a jointed concrete, if you don't have that space for the concrete to expand, What's it going to do? It's going to push against each other. It's going to start buckling up and at the joints is going to start breaking apart. And asphalt pavements, uh, when you're talking about high temperatures, the problem with asphalt is that it becomes softer than what it is designed to be. And when the traffic passes over it, those tires are going to rut into the pavement and create deformation and rutting and damage the pavement. I've seen pictures of train tracks that are twisted, kind of like spaghetti. Why does that happen? So it's again the same thing, right? If you go back to your high school physics, you'll remember that when you heat materials, they expand. When you cool them, they contract. So steel also expands. And so what happens is if the temperature goes higher than what it was designed for, then imagine a thin rod and you press it from both ends inwards, then the rod was suddenly going to bend and buckle along its length. How hot do these surfaces have to get to start experiencing these sorts of issues? Yeah, so in any design process, what we do is we take the local climatic condition and we look at historical data. So you go back and look at 50, 100 years of data, then you say, okay, these were my seven hottest days in the last 50 years or 100 years. These were my seven coldest days. And if I want to be able to handle these extreme temperatures in this particular location, I'm going to design this material and this structure to be able to handle that. And maybe depending on the reliability and importance, maybe a little bit more than that. Now, history is no guarantee of the future, right? As we're, we're breaking all kinds of records here. So those designs that were intended to handle a certain range are now slowly hitting their limits. There are places in the world that are really hot, you know, obviously like Dubai, and they build all sorts of infrastructure. So what could be done to make infrastructure more heat proof? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's not that we don't have the tools or technology. Wisconsin designs are going to start looking like Texas. Texas designs are going to start looking like the Middle East. And the Middle East designs are going to push the envelope to have more and more engineered systems towards higher temperature if the temperature keeps going up. So it's not that we don't have the tools or solutions to design and solve these problems. But if we over-design things, that also means excess cost. And these are all, most of the roadways are primarily taxpayer-funded infrastructure. So and if we underdesign it, the system fails. And if it fails, we again pay it to fix it, right? So we're, we have to guess within a very narrow margin what we expect the future to be and design it there. But if temperatures keep rising, something will have to give, right? Yes. And that's where uh, there's a lot of partnership between uh, agencies and universities conducting a lot of research, looking at innovative materials, more environment-friendly materials, increasing the use of recycled materials and all of these techniques to combat this change in, in climatic conditions. 
this is one of the biggest problems that we have in our industry and we're looking at it very closely. That's Professor Amit Basin, Director of the Center for Transportation Research at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely, it was a pleasure. Thank you, Aisha. The Persian word sofre can mean a cloth that serves as a place setting for a meal. It's also the name of one of Brooklyn's hottest restaurants, whose chef has cooked for the White House, the Met Gala, and honestly done a lot more over a five-decade career. She now has her first cookbook, and NPR's Bilal Qureshi caught up with her on tour in Los Angeles. Cento is a Mediterranean restaurant in L.A. with a lovely outdoor patio under a canopy of olive trees. But for one recent weekend, it became Chef Nassim Alikhani's Persian kitchen. In the last week, I have been a cook here, cooking like 12 hours a day. And sofre is easy, same pot, same pan, same recipe, blah, blah, blah. This was like, okay, let's think about it, how we are going to do today. Even in a food-obsessed city like Los Angeles, with a very large Persian community, it's a tradition that isn't always easy to access, as Fariba Nafisi and Peman Bahmani Bailey told me. I mean, L.A., you know, is colloquially known, or certain parts of it, as Tarangelis. And believe it or not, we still have, don't have this modern Iranian food in L.A. All the Persian restaurants essentially are the same. Your kebabs and your stews very tiny menu, whereas if you go to Iran, there's a long, rich culinary history. So not only do you not see that aspect of the tradition reflected, you also don't see much creativity. Everything is remnants of past glory, and if you didn't know any better, you'd think our people didn't accomplish anything in the last, you know, 5,000 years. I don't want to become a dinosaur stuck in the past of glorious past. I make my glory now. Nassim Alikhani's cooking is rooted in that Persian tradition herbed rice, chicken stewed and barberries, watermelon feta salads. But at Sofre, it's presented on sleek plates, the rich greens, reds, and saffron sharpened and translated into Instagrammable feasts. Tahini date salad, P13, take these two. My favorite was the watermelon feta salad. What was your favorite? The lamb. The lamb, the lamb was bomb. Two prawns, three chicken, four lamb. Dinner guest Fariba Nafisi is an Iranian-American pastry chef and says she sees her own journey reflected in Ali Khani's story. I follow her, I admire her, and I wanted the, to take the chance to come and see her. It's one thing that non-Iranians come and they are fascinated by our food, our culture, because of curiosity, not knowing. But it's also another thing. It's, it will reach another level when your own people they come and pat your back and they say, well done. The morning after Ali Khani's final L.A. pop-up, I went to meet her as she prepared to return home to Brooklyn. She says she may be a celebrated chef today, but finding her place in that industry hasn't been easy. I've been to a lot of kitchens as a stage, as, you know, someone who's watching like a fly on the wall, and they had me pick parsley. They never really understood what business I have in that environment. I'm a woman immigrant, older. I have all these like disadvantage, check, check, check. Or I can take a step back and say, here are the advantage. My age, life experience, what I can bring to this. Half a century of cooking on a little stovetop with one pot and now in a professional kitchen. 
And now, with her first book, she's sharing the recipes she perfected over those 50 years, along with photographs and memories of Iran. For Ali Khani, Sofre, both the book and the restaurant, is also her immigrant story of finding home. Roots are very important to me, and physical roots. I literally brought a little stem from my father's grape garden, which he originally brought from his own village. I physically planted that grapevine in the back garden of uh, Sofre. That's my roots. And I think once you practice who you are, no matter where you are, you're home. Bilal Qureshi, NPR News. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. The new Barbie movie has been dominating the box office while also winning critical praise. WBUR Cognoscenti editor Sarah Shukla saw the film at a drive-in movie theater with her family and old friends. Here's her take. When my daughter turned two years old, my friend Margaret gave her a pink Barbie dream car convertible. You know the one. My daughter never really got into Barbies but that convertible traveled miles across our hardwood floors, ferrying Elsa, Batman, and countless stuffed animals. I wasn't that into Barbie either. As a kid in the 1980s, I had a He-Man castle, not a Barbie dream house. I'm just setting the stage because I loved the Barbie movie. Hey, Barbie. Can I come to your house tonight? Sure. I don't have anything big planned, just a giant blowout party with all the Barbies and plant choreography and a bespoke song. You should stop by. So cool. Margaret and I went to see the film together. We packed our kids and husbands into two cars and headed down the Cape to a drive-in theater in Wellfleet. We snagged two parking spaces five rows from the front. Two metal speakers hung from the yellow poles installed all over the parking lot. When we rolled in, they were blasting Barbie Girl. Margaret told me the movie was rated PG-13 for existential angst. And I love that for Barbie. Life as a woman, a girl, and in different ways a man, is confusion, madness, joy, and myriad contradictions, often all at once. There's a monologue in the film when America Ferreira's character unpacks all the things women have to be. You have to never get old, never be rude, never show off, never be selfish, never fall down, never fail, never show fear, never get out of line. It's too hard. It's too contradictory. And nobody gives you a medal or says, thank you. And it turns out, in fact, that not only are you doing everything wrong, but also everything is your fault. As I listened to it, I was also up repositioning the speaker and coaxing kids to swap places and reminding them not to yell and doling out Pringles. I actually said out loud, I'm watching a movie about women doing everything while I do everything. I'm an adult with a job and a robust collection of Birkenstocks, but I still feel like a teenager sometimes. I'm still carrying around multiple timelines of myself thinking, isn't this all supposed to make some sort of sense by now? I think Greta Gerwig understands that idea at a molecular level. There are toys that see us through stages of life And then there are people, like my friend Margaret. We've known the late 20-something versions of each other and the bleary-eyed, early 30s new parent versions. Now, as we're entering midlife and our kids are at the precipice of being teenagers, we share a steady level of existential angst, but also a lot more. 
We're at a stage when life feels both deeply overwhelming and like all we've ever wanted at the same time. Seeing the movie together reminded me that there's a special kind of magic when a friend sees and loves all of you. The good, the bad, and the just plain weird. I think those friendships help you hold all those versions of yourself too. It's the messy both and of it all. And somehow, after all these years, Barbie gets this too. I'm trying to tell you something about my life. Sarah Shukla is a writer and an editor for Cognoscenti, WBUR's Ideas and Opinion page. Check out her essay and many more at WBUR.org. To help me take my life less seriously Cause it's only life after all Yeah It's only life after all Well, darkness has a hunger that's insatiable And lightness has a call that's hard to hear We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet. Learn how to have impact at Zevin.com. This is 90.9 WBUR at the NAACP National Convention in Boston. Today, delegates can attend an afternoon forum on racism, anti-Semitism, and white nationalism. The conversation features NAACP President Eric Johnson, the rapper and activist Meek Mill, Kraft Group CEO Robert Kraft, and historian Henry Louis Gates. Neponset Day is underway, the free public, family-oriented community celebration along the Neponset River and the Greenway Trail in Dorchester takes place until 1 this afternoon. The event celebrates diverse communities and the natural habitats and recreational activities along the river. It is 67 degrees in Boston, mostly sunny, highs in the upper 70s today. On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we gave the Southwest some advice in dealing with the record heat. Maybe, Phoenix, you should not have named your city after a bird most famous for bursting into flames. I'm Karen Chi, in for Peter Sagal. Join us for more chit-chat about the weather with our guest, actor-director Randall Park, on this week's news quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for chefs and designed for restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From the Pew Charitable Trusts, celebrating its 75th anniversary, using data to make a difference and addressing the challenges of a changing world. Learn more at pewtrusts.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. In the new documentary titled Kokomo City, D. Smith brings us an unrelenting view into the lives of four Black trans sex workers like Daniela Carter, who talks about the men she's met. In no way are they there to protect us. They're there to exploit us, to fetishize us, 
And so whatever we face as a reality, once we leave that experience that benefited them, they don't give a f But so many of us are caught up telling each other like, oh girl, don't worry about getting a job. Oh girl, don't pursue your real dream. But they don't tell her how easy it is when you lose a sense of yourself. When the only thing you know of value to yourself is what a man put on you. And there's much more in Kokomo City, love, rejection, and wisdom as people work to live as their most authentic selves. Director and producer Dee Smith joins us now from New York. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for that intro. That was wonderful. Can you start off by explaining the title of this film? I wanted to come up with a name that didn't necessarily play off anything LGBT or queer or trans, like, you know, mm -hmm. transaction or, you okay, know, yeah. I, I really wanted something that was going to be singular. And so I was actually looking for copyright free music from like the 30s and the 40s with, you know, black soul artists like Muddy Waters and Lead Belly. And I came across this song called um, Sissy Man Blues. And in the song, one of the lines says, uh, Lord, if you can't bring me some woman, please bring me some sissy man. And I'm thinking, wow, here's a black man in the 1930s. His um, name was Kokomo Arnold. And I thought, I love that if it was Kokomo City. And, and I thought it was just a great backstory, but also the name was just perfect. How did you come to meet the women you profiled in Kokomo City? Um, you know, these women who are, are working as sex workers and, and are trying to, you know, figure out their life, figure out what they're going to do next. Mm. Initially, I found uh, the girls online uh, on Instagram. I went to some of the celebrity uh, trans women and went to their comments and found the girls that way. The girls represent different spaces of the spectrum. And I think that's a great start, you know, for us as a community to just all of us be represented, not just the girls that are in shows or movies. You know, we, we have to make sure we grab everybody as we're moving forward. This film, it looks at not only the struggles that Black trans women, you know, face from society writ large, but discrimination from Black people themselves, not just, you know, Black men, but some Black cis women who don't accept them. And as you may have seen on social media, there's a lot of discussion about a, a Black comedian who's talking about trans women. And there's a lot of arguments about womanhood and periods and all of this and that and the third. What do you make of that conversation? My truthful opinion is that all of these women that are involved are hurt. Mm. They're upset. They're misunderstood. They feel unheard. And I rightfully so on both sides. This tension that we're feeling and seeing on social media, I'm glad that has happened. I hate that it's happened this way, but it need it needed to because we're tiptoeing around what needs to be discussed. Listen, a lot of people are going to be hurt. A lot of people are going to be offended. A lot of people are going to be discouraged. But we have to face this. We have to do this as a community, especially after doing Kokomo City. This is part of the reason why I wanted to do Kokomo City so that we could talk for us, about us, to us. That's what's so important. We're missing that. You wore a lot of hats for this film. One of them is that you filmed a lot of this yourself. Like, why was that important to you? Mm. Now, yeah, I did the cinematography. I directed and um, edited. <laughs> I actually edited it on iMovie, which is crazy now that I think about it. But 
listen, when I did this, I didn't have any money. I was sleeping on couches. I was going from couch to couch. Couldn't get it, get it together. Couldn't get back on my feet, you know, after being ostracized out of the music industry. I really was just lost on how to get it back together. But I think working with anyone at that time would have really distracted me. It would have slowed me down. If one of the girls said, hey, I'm actually free today. Could you come? I don't want to, you know, have to call a director or someone to see if their schedule's free. You know, it's just, mm-hmm. it, it felt so liberating. And I was so empowered to just go, 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 go. And when I wasn't filming girls, I was filming B-roll. I was, you know, coming up with other scenes, you know. So it was a nonstop experience for me. And I'm, I'm actually very grateful it happened that way. Mm. You mentioned that you were in the music industry. So you, you've you produced music for people like Kendrick Lamar, Lil Wayne, uh, Sierra. But then you transitioned. What happened? You know, I had songs in the pipeline. That means, like, the labels are about to purchase a song and the artist has already sang it and is, I'm going to get, you know, paid and the song's going to be released. I was always invited to, obviously, industry parties and and always had people at my studio. So when I decided to transition, all of those relationships and all those connections and colleagues, they just went away. And for so long, I was in denial. And I just it was in disbelief that me just being transgender was going to completely turn people off. I thought maybe they'll be shocked and, and, you know, maybe a head shake here or, you know, like, wow, okay, well, you know, Dee's just being an artist, you know, or whatnot. Now I'm starting to, like, really let trans women know that, you know, it was tough. And you have to prepare to kind of walk the walk alone. You can't just expect people to turn off and turn on this emotional faucet whenever you feel like it and and how, how you think they should. Like, it was a big, big deal for people to, to really comprehend why I did that and how to work with me, how to communicate with me. But it was very hurtful. I had mostly Black people around me. That was, you know, it's like the music industry and then there's the Black music industry. Those are the two music industries. And some of my people that came to my studio was Andre 3000, like just to hang out, like Lloyd, or sitting with people that just trying to just make the place, the world a better place, you know? And there's no drama. I'm used to that. I missed that. Have any of the people from the music industry reached out to you since you started on this this new journey and making the documentary? <laughs> yes. But ironically, I don't need them. You know, any music that I'm doing is going to be for any film that I'm doing in the future. And that that is fulfilling me as a producer. I don't need to chase any artist like I used to, to, to eat, you know, and to lo- use my last bit of gas to get to the studio to produce a song that they may not even use on the album. Those days for me are over, but I, I will always want to make music. I always want to do music. I am open to working with people, but, you know, I'm just positioned differently, um, which I'm very grateful for. Mm-hmm. What do you hope that people take with them from this documentary? Um, I want them to know that Trans women are just as human as you are. We cry, we laugh, we love a good kiki, we love a good, <laughs> you know, conversation. And we just really just want to be supported. We just want to be recognized. We want to be recognized as humans. Not, to me, not praised. Not praised more than everyone else. I don't need that. I just want what everyone else has. D. Smith's new documentary, Kokomo City, is in theaters now. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. 
Psychologist Lisa Miller noticed something remarkable when she led a religious service at a mental health facility. In that moment, they were free of suffering. They were free of the characteristic patterns that had dragged them down. Later today on All Things Considered, can religion and spirituality help people manage addiction and depression? You can tune in on a smart speaker by asking it to play NPR or your member station by name. When it comes to party music, there's a few standards that everybody knows and just can't resist dancing to. These are classics and must-have music on every party playlist. Of course, I'm talking about the unmistakable funky groove of Cool in the Game. started making music nearly 60 years ago, but Cool and the Gang are still at it and released a new album this month called People Just Want to Have Fun. And since it's the peak of summer party season, we wanted to talk to one of the band's founding members. George Funky Brown is the group's drummer and keyboardist. He joins us now to talk about the legendary group and his new memoir, Too Hot, Cool and the Gang and Me, which came out this month. George Brown, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. In your book, Too Hot, you talk about your early passion for music, drumming on things before you had a drum kit, and you also talk about being able to hear and almost compose full symphonies in your head. Tell us about that process. How do you turn those ideas into the music that we all know and like groove to now? Well, you know, I, I'm self-taught, and, and millions of musicians are the same. You know, you might just get the music, you might just get the groove, or you get a, a, a lyric line with, with the melody. Mm-hmm. Or someone might say something, and you go, wow, that's a great line, and you write it down. Mm. Like, get down on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ladies' night. Yeah. yeah. Things got too hot for me, man. I had to get out of there. You know, that's <laughs> <laughs> so I, you grew up in Jersey City, New Jersey, and that's where you met many of the band members when y'all were just kids. How did Jersey City influence the band's sound and the music that you made together? Well, we're talking about 1964, and um, Jersey City is a blue-collar town. Mm-hmm. None of us were silver spoon babies, single parent. The, the mothers worked very, very hard. All Jersey City was the inner city, meaning, you know, the minority and the hardships. And that lent itself to uh, writing and playing a certain way, being untrained, but knowing or teaching ourselves how to play. You come up with these ideas that are not not in the books. You're you're off the page and it comes out a certain way. And people, oh, that's new. The older musicians back then said, boy, wow, you kids, man. That's some new stuff to play in there. What is the Cool in the Gang sound? How would you define that? 
Sound of Happiness. Yeah. I mean, as I said, Cool in the Gang has a new album out called People Just Want to Have Fun. Let's play a little bit of that here. I think the song is called Let's Party. the rest of the band create music now versus earlier in your career? Has has the process changed? It's changed quite a bit, but we uh, still do some of the old-fashioned ways of writing the music and uh, performing it. We get everybody in the studio still. Okay. Drums, real horns, real piano, real everything. Mm. We might take a loop on some of them to lock it up a little bit. But that's about it. In your memoir, you also talk about some of the challenges of fame, um, a, a struggle with prescription drugs and depression. H- how were you able to balance some really kind of heavy burdens and still maintain your spark for, as you said, like happy music, upbeat music? Because that's what uh, we do. You know, when it was time to go on stage, it's okay, let's become cool again. You know, that's what we do. So when it was time to do, we did it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and all the other stuff, you put it to the side. Yeah, everything else goes to the side. Because I did want to ask you about that, because there have been a lot of band members in the gang over the years. Is it difficult to be dealing with a band and have to deal with other people? And then are, are you driven by the chemistry of making music with a particular group of people? Or is it something else? It's the chemistry. If the chemistry is there, bingo, it works. And you want to make it happen, and you want to see people happy, and you want to be successful with it. And you want to help create a culture, a world culture, where people come together with that music. That music is bringing people together and making this one world culture greater than it was before. And when you do music that's happy music, that's what it does. It it brings people to the clubs to have a good time. And that's what we do. We say our prayer before we leave, and we say, let's go make some people happy. That was George Brown of Cool in the Gang. The Gang is out with a new album called People Just Want to Have Fun. It came out earlier this month, along with George Brown's memoir called Too Hot, Cool in the Gang and Me. Thank you so much for joining us, and thanks for getting me up on the dance floor all these years. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. Thank you. Blessings. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jarl and Pamela Moan. 
focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From Smartmouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with two rinses a day. Smartmouth mouthwash can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and supercenters, or at smartmouth.com. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. Good morning, I'm Sharon Brody. Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is next at 10 o'clock. Start your Monday tomorrow with Rupa Shinoy and 90.9 WBUR. You'll hear the Reverend William Barber of the Poor People's Campaign discuss the federal minimum wage and why it has not gone up in 14 years. That's Morning Edition tomorrow here on WBUR. It's 67 degrees in Boston, mostly sunny today, highs in the upper 70s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Boston Lights, presented by National Grid, is back at Franklin Park Zoo. Experience hundreds of amazing lanterns nightly, beginning August 4th. FranklinParkZoo.org. Since the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, experts in the U.S. and Europe have lamented that the global south hasn't taken a strong stance against Russia. What's behind their caution toward aligning with the West? The situation in the global south is nuanced. It's not black and white. But more needs to be done to engage with the global south. That's On Point Monday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Hisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.